All right, welcome here. This is uh, part two of my little mini-series. Somebody asked me a little while ago if I knew what was going on with Doug Batchelor and his meetings that were supposed to be here in this room, but now I think are not. I don't know. And anyway, my response was, I have no clue. Uh, I don't know what Doug's doing. All I know is that I'm here to give four talks. That's all I know. Yes. What was that? Okay, there's someone replacing Doug? It'd be hard to replace Doug. Okay, so, uh, anyway, you'll have to talk to somebody because I'm not the man. I used to work for Doug a long time ago. I used to be one of Doug's bachelors <laughs> before I got married. But uh, I no longer am one of Doug's bachelors, and I don't know what's happening with his speaking appointments. All right, so let's open our Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. I want to thank you for coming. Again, I'm thrilled to be here. The Lord is good. I was so blessed by sensing the Holy Spirit in our last meeting. It's just thrilling to know that Jesus is with us. And I thank the Lord for that. I thank him for his faithfulness. Even when we fall, he is still faithful and good. And he picks us up and tries to put us back on the narrow road. And that's where he wants us all. Uh, this is my second talk, but it's really the beginning of a new little mini-series. Uh, three, three talks dealing with the character of God, controversy. I've written a new book. Actually, it's co-authored. Uh, I wrote it, but I was actually the writer. But Dr. Chris Lewis and Loma Linda, we co-authored it together. Uh, we worked together on it. We just felt that it would be better for the reader to just read one person's style instead of two people's styles. But this is a co-authored book, and it's called The Character of God Controversy. And the subtitle is A Close Look at the Intense Love and Justice of God Almighty. Uh, this book is different than a lot of the other books that I've written, which are mostly written for the world at large. Uh, I try to write my books for a broad audience, not just for people within the church. But this particular book is one that we shifted gears to deal with an issue that is happening within, among us. And I and Dr. Lewis, both of us, feel very strongly that uh, it's, it's a big issue, it's a growing issue, and the issue has to do with God with his character, with what he's like or what he isn't like. Uh, the more you read the Bible, when you read the spirit of prophecy, it's very clear that we are in the midst of a controversy concerning the character of God. And so that's what our focus is in this book. Yes? Can you turn your mic up a little bit? Can I turn my mic up? Uh, I don't know exactly how to do that. Someone will have to turn me up. Okay. Want a little more volume. All right, how's that sound? seemed like during the last meeting, when I started actually getting into the meeting, the volume went up. I don't know if anybody turned it up or not, but it went up, which was good. I actually gave a seminar once. Uh, it was a series of meetings in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And opening night, we didn't find out until after the evening was over that the speakers were not connected. And yet we had volume <laughs> that night. And that was a, a miracle of the Lord. That was great. So, all right, well, we're on a time schedule, so we're going to get started right away. Uh, the Character of God Controversy, Part 1. This is our uh, title. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to help us. 
Dear Father in heaven, Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be here as we talk about, about you and about the, the battle that is going on about you that is happening within our church and around the world. And I just pray, we pray together that you, that you will take charge of this meeting, that I'll just be a channel for your thoughts, for your voice, and for your heart. Please, God, help us. We commit this time to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Revelation chapter 14 is a chapter that we know well. Verses 14 to 16 describes the return of Jesus. In verse 14, the Bible says, I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here is a picture of Jesus coming on a white cloud. Uh, our ministry is called White Horse Media. We like that name from Revelation 19, describes Jesus coming on a white horse. Here he's described as coming on a white cloud. Uh, before I'm done here, and then head back home to uh, Washington, uh, I want to talk about the white robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness, which is what is going to prepare us for heaven. And anyway, these verses describe the Lord's coming. In the verses right before them, in verses 6 to 12, we have the message of the three angels. And the messages of the three angels are designed to prepare us for the coming of Christ on the white cloud. And when you look at the verses before those, in verses 1 to 5, Revelation 14, 1 to, 1 to 5, it describes a people. The people that are produced by the messages that are prepared for the coming of the Lord. And this group is called the 144,000. Revelation 14, 1 to 5. When you look at verse 1, there's, there's a key characteristic of this group. Verse 1 says, I looked and lo, a lamb... And the Lamb represents Jesus, stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written where? Written in their foreheads. Right. And this is a key characteristic of this final group of people. Now, when it talks about their foreheads, does this mean their skin? Something written on their skin, above their noses, between their eyes? No. What does the forehead represent in the Bible? It represents the mind. That's right. God is going to write something in the minds of his people. Now, based on this verse, what is written there in their minds? It says it's the name of God. The name of God is written in their foreheads. And I'll prove to you in a little bit, and you probably most of you already know this, that when the Bible talks about the name of God, it is talking about his character. And this verse tells us that God is going to have a final people prepared for his coming who have his character, the attributes of his character, written inside of their heads and also their hearts, inside, inside of them, inside of their souls. Now, verse 5 also describes this group. And it says, in their mouth was found no guile. Uh, some Bibles say no deception. For they are without fault before the throne of God. The word guile means deception or lies. So the 144,000, they have God's character in their foreheads. And what comes out of their mouth is the truth. No lies. Uh, the devil is a very, very subtle and cunning being. 
And he's not only trying to deceive people out there, but he's trying to deceive people in here as well. In fact, we've been told that our, our greatest uh, dangers can come from within. And it just makes so much sense to me that if God is seeking to write his character in the foreheads of his people and that this is part of their preparation for the second coming, a people being prepared for the Lord, that the devil would do everything possible to try to prevent that writing of God's name in our foreheads to take place. And one of the ways that he would prevent it is by distorting it, by perverting the character of God. And he's been trying to do this for a long time. It started in heaven. When Satan first began to question God, he began to challenge God. Then he, it was actually Lucifer, then his name was changed to Satan. And then he convinced other angels. He deceived them about God. That was really the ultimate issue back in heaven was, was God. Satan lost confidence in God and attacked him and challenged him. And then he convinced other angels to go in his direction. In the book, The Desire of Ages, it says that Satan misrepresented the character of God. And it says he, that's how he deceived angels. And it also says that's how he deceives men in the same way. Uh, there's a quote in the book, The Great Controversy, page 569, that says, It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. Powerful quotation. So that's why we've written this book, is to deal with the subject, to tackle the subject, to understand the subject as much as we can, because we are in a battle. And when you really peel away the layers of the onion and get down to the core issues that this whole world and that the church is dealing with, and that we as individuals are dealing with, the core issues have to do with God, right? And with who God is, and, and with his character, with what, what he's like. Because we have to, um, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that the Lord wants us to see him as he is. And Satan is trying to get people to see him as he's not, so that eventually they will be on the wrong road. Uh, John chapter 17, I believe it's verse 3 or verse 4, Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the issue of God and of his character is central to the issue of the great controversy. Now let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. In this first talk, I'm going to focus on the attributes of God's character, and we're going to take a look at what happened at the golden calf and explore issues. In the second program, the next one, or meeting, we're going to focus on Gethsemane and the cross. Very, very powerful. What really happened there. And then in the third and the last segment of these three parts, we're going to talk about the character of God and its connection to the message of the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness by faith. Christ our righteousness. They're all intertwined. And the devil is certainly not happy that we're focusing on this. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> uh, when you really commit yourself to the Lord and start following him, you know, we come under attack from the devil. And Satan has been attacking me for a long time. It's a miracle that I'm still here. After almost 30 years, Satan has tried to derail me many, many, many times. And I know that I have a personal enemy who hates me. 
and it's mutual <laughs> between us. <laughs> I don't like him either. <laughs> and he's at war with me and I'm at war with him. And I, I cherish the promise that says, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Hallelujah. And we're going to look at some real issues today that are very, very uh, powerful. And we need spiritual discernment in order to see them correctly. And, and I'm not talking about just seeing a theory that I'm going to present to you. I'm talking about having the Holy Spirit enlighten our minds to teach us about God's character based on the Bible. That's the issue. And that's what we need to see. Exodus chapter 33 finds Moses up on the mountain. And in verse 18, he said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me your glory, Lord. Quite a request from this man, Moses. Verse 19, the Lord responded and said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now notice that. In Revelation 14.1, we read that the 144,000 have the name of God written in their foreheads. And this verse, God says, I'm going to proclaim my name. So this is the name that needs to be written in our foreheads. God's name, his character. And then in verse 27, he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass when my glory passes by that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand and you shall see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. Quite an interesting situation here. So Moses was up there on the mountain and God picked him up and put him into this little crevice somewhere. A little cleft of the rock. And he put his hand over that crevice. And Moses was kneeling down there, just in awe, peeking through the little cracks in God's finger as the glory of God passed by in front of him. That's what happened. How would you like to be Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock and seeing the Lord pass by and reveal his glory, his character, his name in front of you? We all need to crouch low and pray, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Uh, it's one thing to, to make an image in our minds of what we think God is like. And it's another thing entirely to kneel humbly and say, Lord, teach me what you're like. It's a big difference. Big difference. Uh, one of the ways that we can break the second commandment about bowing down to images is by creating an image in our heads that isn't true. Uh, we need to let the Lord teach us. And that has really impressed me. Exodus 34 continues on. The Lord said to Moses, Shh. He said, Hew out two tables of stone like the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which you broke. Now, I'm going to come back to that. Because this is the context of Exodus 34. It really takes you back to the time when Moses broke the first tables. And I'll, I'll come back to that and explain the significance of that. So God told him to get ready in the morning and to come up back onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, and to present himself there on the top of the mountain. 
And so Moses got up early in the morning. Uh, verse 4 says, He took the two tables of stone. He rose up early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he had the two tables of stone in his hand. He had the Ten Commandments. Now it's, it's interesting, significant, that Moses is coming up the mountain with these tables and then God reveals his character in verses 5 and 6 and 7. And the, the connection is, the reason why Moses was carrying the tables is because the character of God which he was about to describe is also uh, inscribed, you might say, on the tables of stone. God describes his character in verses 6 and 7. He inscribed his character on solid rock. And then when Jesus came, he revealed that character in his own life. What the character of God is really like. So let's look at it. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Again, back to Revelation 14.1, the 144,000 will have God's name in their foreheads, and here God is proclaiming it himself. Right? So we should take our, as uh, Moses was told to do, take your shoes off, for you are on holy ground, and we should reverently let the Lord talk to us based upon his own revelation. Verse 6 says, The Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed. Now these are, when you put the verses together, that's how we know that the name of God is his character. We know that biblically, because here he's proclaiming his name, and he's revealing his character. So it's a biblical um, interpretation of name of God. Verse 6 says, The Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth, and it says that he worshiped. And he was worshiping the true God, was he not? He saw the revelation. And in fact, that revelation was so powerful that when he finally came down off the mountain, this time, his face was glowing. His face, he was literally the man with the shiny face because he saw God. He saw the Lord's character. And he also saw the plan of salvation of how God's mercy was going to be demonstrated through a savior. And we'll talk about that more later. Anyway, when you look at verses six and seven, uh, it's very clear, just by looking at the verses, that God's character is a marvelous blend of various attributes. Isn't that right? It's like uh, some of you ladies maybe, or some of you men may be good cooks. Uh, I'm not much of a cook. Before I got married, I never really cooked. I just compiled. <laughs> I was a compiler. And now that I have a wife, a lovely wife, uh, she does some of the cooking and I help a little bit. And, but anyway, when you cook a good meal, a good meal has a combination of elements. It has seasonings and various types of foods, right, that you have to put them together in the right way. And then it tastes good. 
if, uh, if the combination's not right, then it doesn't taste good, right? And when you look at these verses, God's character is a blend. It's an exquisite combination of different attributes. And to just on the broad side, we could say that these attributes are a uh, blend of mercy and justice. I think that's just a broad sweep. And not only that, but it's heavy on the mercy side. God's character is heavy on the mercy side. Uh, verse 6 says he's merciful. First thing, merciful. God's been very merciful to me and to you. Some, somebody once said, we often complain that we don't get what we want. But we should all be thankful that none of us has yet received what we deserve. Amen. Right? God has been merciful to you and to me, or we wouldn't be here. And then it says he's gracious and he's long-suffering, which means patient. He's abundant in goodness and in truth. God is not only heavy on the mercy side, but he's a God of truth. Truth is a key component to the character of God. We must never forget that. We need the truth and not lies. And then it says, continuing on about his mercy, he keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, the fact that iniquity, transgression, and sin are mentioned shows that God is very moral, that he is a holy God, a pure God, and that when people don't follow him and break his law, there is such a thing as sin and transgression and iniquity, right? Sin is sin. But God is so good that he can still forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise his name. If he didn't forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, we wouldn't be here. Uh, we would all be utterly lost. Now then the last part of verse 7 says, and that he will, also it says, by no means, no means, clear the guilty. And this is talking about his justice. And I think most people agree with that. This is dealing with God's justice. That he's merciful, he's full of truth, but he's also just. And he will not clear the guilty, but he will visit. Visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now the issue of the justice of God is a big issue within our church right now. And the, the issue has to do with the nature of how God visits. How many of you are familiar with this issue? Quite a few of you are. Um, there are a, a number of options when it comes to God's visitation, His justice, or His punishment of sin. Uh, one option is that the way God visits is by simply allowing people to reap what they sow, allowing consequences to take place, such as if you smoke a lot of tobacco, you'll probably darken your lungs and maybe even get lung cancer, and that the way God would visit upon that person for, for doing that would be just to allow them to get lung cancer, to allow them to reap what they sow. And that in, in that sense, God is looked upon as being uh, passive in, his, in the implementation of his justice. 
He allows consequences to take place. Now then option two, that's option one. Option two is that the way God visits is more directly. That he uh, can actually directly visit or punish someone because of their sins. Now then the third option, which I personally believe in, is that he can use a combination of both methodologies. That he can allow natural consequences to take place as a means of what you might say retribution or justice or judgment. Uh, and that he can also, at times, act directly himself, personally, against sin. I believe that when I look at the Bible, and I, we build a strong case in Scripture, and in this book, The Character of God Controversy, that the Bible and the spirit of prophecy gives examples of both. I do not believe it is one or the other. I believe the evidence is very clear that it's both. Now let me tell you a little personal background. Um, when I first became an Adventist, a Christian, and then an Adventist, at the age of uh, 20, I um, went to one of our schools in Southern California and was in college studying for the ministry and had a close friend who introduced me to ideas that were coming from another university that was close by. And uh, these ideas were beginning to grow within the Adventist church and I started reading some books. And um, they influenced me. And you know, this is being recorded, and I'll just tell you, uh, Dr. Gray Maxwell in Loma Linda, he was one of the main people whose books I was reading. And there was a certain reasonableness to a lot of what he said. And because I didn't have a lot of background myself, um, I'll just tell you honestly, this is my experience. I believed what I was reading in his books for a while for a year or two. And I saw the arguments, and I put together the quotes, and it made sense to me, as it makes sense to a lot of people today, because his ideas are uh, growing in certain circles within our church. And it made sense to me. But then as time went on, a lot of different things happened, and God began to deal with me in, when it came to these ideas. And I began to see that not all of these ideas were really right based upon the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And I went through a struggle over this. It was a battle inside my head. <laughs> and eventually, things became clearer and clearer. And uh, there's a lot of other things that happened I don't want to go into, but um, as the years went on, I became aware that uh, actually in the last few years that these ideas are resurfacing and, and growing within our church right now. The, uh, the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference, a number of their uh, authors are very concerned about these ideas as well and their growth within the church. And they've written papers that are in their archives dealing with these exact issues. And, uh, and I've read these, and I've studied this, and I've just really feel convicted about it. And then uh, some time ago, a, a doctor in Loma Linda, Dr. Chris Lewis, and I began to discuss this. And the two of us strongly felt that it was time for us to put 
what we know in print to try to help people as they're dealing with these issues to come out on the right side. Uh, yes, quickly. Yes, 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 uh, and um, the, the, the issues, the, the theory that is being promoted within the church, and, and it's a mixture. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't just say one person teaches everything. And, you know, there's a mixture of a lot of different ideas. But one of the currents within the church that I was exposed to when I was going to school and that is out there right now is that the, the justice of God can almost entirely be uh, defined as something that is passive on his part. That he, he withdraws his grace and his mercy and allows consequences to take place. And that that is the justice of God. That is the wrath of God. It's, uh, they interpret Romans chapter 1 where the Bible says God gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up to their evil ways. They say that's God's wrath. And, and that wrath theory, as it being simply passive, has implications when it comes to your understanding of, of the cross and then your understanding of the seven last plagues, and then your understanding of what happens at the end of the world and the destruction of the wicked. Uh, it, it, it weaves its way in, and then when you understand righteousness by faith, that view of God's justice and of his character affects one thing after another, and that's what happened to me. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, more closely. Now I know our time is moving, so I know we probably have questions, but if you just forego, because we've got a lot to do. Um, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 32. As I mentioned, that the context of Exodus 34 is God telling Moses to bring up two tables of stone up to the mountain like the first ones that he broke. Right? Exodus 34.1. Now when did Moses break the first tables? He broke them at the foot of Mount Sinai when the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf. The golden calf situation in chapter 32 is the background of what we see in Exodus 34. And let me read another quotation here from uh, just quickly back to the revelation in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, um, God's character, Signs of the Times, June 17, 1880, says, Moses saw mercy and justice blended in harmony and love expressed without a parallel. Six Testimonies, page 221, says, We are called to represent to the world the character of God as it was revealed to Moses. So this is part of our calling. And I believe strongly, based upon all my research, that God's character is a blend of mercy truth and justice which is ultimately rooted in pure unselfish love. God's love is the root of everything he does and it, it is demonstrated in his mercy and in his love for truth and in his justice and we are exploring now his justice looking at Exodus chapter 32 because that's the context of what happened in chapter 34. Exodus 32 verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, this man, which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him, what has become of him. So Moses was up in the mountain. He had been up there for quite a while. The Israelites down below were getting restless, and they went to Aaron. 
And they said, Aaron, make us a god. Make us a god. Aaron was in charge of the camp in Moses' absence. And they wanted him to make a god. Now, what, would, what should Aaron have done? Here's these restless people saying, make us a god. What should Aaron have done? No. That's right. He should have said, no. We can't do that. Can't do that. Now, Aaron was, was a really nice guy. And uh, niceness is definitely important in the Christian character. We need to be kind and gracious and nice, for sure. But there comes a time when we also need to draw a line and say no. And that's what Aaron should have done. But he didn't. He was too, he was too nice, you might say. He was too, uh, he was compromising. So Aaron said to them, in verse 2, break off your, your golden earrings and bring them to me. Verse 4, it says, he received them at their hands, and then he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a molten calf. And then he said, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, before this golden calf. And he made a proclamation, and he said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now, was it really the Lord that they were worshiping in that feast? No. And it just shows how people can get off track and make a god, make their own god, and then worship it. And that's what they were doing. And this was a big mistake. Verse 6 says, They rose up early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings. They, thought they brought their peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and to drink. And then they rose up to play. They were having a big party at the foot of Mount Sinai, worshiping a god that they had created in their own minds and then built in the form of a golden calf, a block of metal. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Moses, High up on the mountain, God began to give instructions to his servant. He said, Get down. For your people, which you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. God saw exactly what was happening. They were not worshiping him in truth. And they had corrupted themselves and had made their own God a molten God. And so uh, Moses begins the trek down. In verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables which were written upon both their sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Verse 16 says, The tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraven upon tables. It was God himself that wrote those Ten Commandments with his own finger. And he was revealing himself in that law. And as we'll look at later on, as I mentioned, that law and that character was really demonstrated in the, in the fullest sense when Jesus came here on earth and lived that law. He showed us what that law looks like when it is kept. So Moses is now on the way down from the mountain, carrying the Ten Commandments. Verse 17 says, Joshua heard the noise of the people. He, he ran into Joshua on the way down. Joshua had, was up there too. And then uh, Joshua said to Moses, there is the noise, noise of war in the camp. And Moses said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery. Neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. It's not a battle going on. Joshua thought there's a, a fight going on. Some of our enemies are attacking us. And Moses said, no, that's not what's going on. Moses said, it is the noise of them that sing, do I hear. They're having a party. So Moses and Joshua continued down. When they got to the bottom of the mountain, verse 19 says, it came to pass, as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot. 
and he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mountain. Now, where we live now up in Washington, we live in a little town right in the outskirts of a little town called Newport, Newport, Washington, and it's way up in the mountains, and there's all kinds of pine trees around. And even if you buy a house, we've looked at a lot of houses, we're house hunting right now, kind of away from town, up in one of the mountains, the noise from the cars and the trucks that go down, up and down the highway, you can still hear them because the acoustics are very powerful in that area. It's just the way the situation is that you can hear the road noise from a long way away. And I can imagine that the acoustics in this area where the Israelites were camped was very, very good. And when Moses came down off the mountain, all of a sudden all the Israelites, and maybe they first heard the crash. Moses took the tables and crashed them on the ground or on, the, on a rock. And all of the Israelites in the midst of their party, they froze and they looked and they stared and they realized Moses has returned. And his face was very intense, I'm sure. Now, you look at Aaron and you look at Moses and there's quite a contrast between the two of them. You know, which one was revealing God's character more perfectly at that moment? Moses or Aaron? Moses. Aaron was nice, but he didn't have the true interest of the people of God in his heart. But Moses did. And Moses knew it was time for action. This was a very, very serious situation. So he broke those tables, which showed that the Israelites had broken their, their covenant that they had made with God. And then Moses begins to talk to Aaron. They have this dialogue. Well, actually, before that, Moses took the, went and took the calf, burned it in the fire, ground it into powder, and then gave it to the Israelites to drink. And then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? You have led them in this huge sin. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. You know the people, they are set on mischief. For they said to me, Make us gods, which shall go before us. But as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, did not, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said, And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> now, was that the truth? No. Not exactly. No, that wasn't the truth. You know, he had a lot to do with making that calf. But he justified himself. And he, he said he blamed the people. We just threw the gold in and the calf popped out. And as I look at this, it just shows me you know, human nature. When you're, when you're guilty, when you're wrong, when you've done wrong, when you've yielded, when you've compromised, it's a lot easier to blame somebody else than to take responsibility for your own actions. And one of the issues that we all personally have to deal with is our own personal sins. When we've sinned, when we've made a mistake, when we've gone in the wrong direction or whatever we've done, whether it's our doctrines or our teachings or our lives or our behavior or whatever it is, we need to be willing to take a look in our own, at our own hearts and say, Lord, I did it. I'm sorry. And if we're wrong about God's character, we need to be willing to say, Lord, I've been off track. I'm sorry. Help me to know the truth and to see you correctly. Well, Verse uh, 25 is very important. It says, Moses saw that the people were naked. For Aaron had made them naked to their shame among their enemies. 
And when Moses looked at them dancing around naked, uh, he realized that this people was in big trouble. That God's protection was being withdrawn from them because he could no longer protect them in the midst of their enemies when they were doing these kind of things. And he knew that this threat was so serious that um, the enemies of Israel could come in and wipe them all out. And I do believe that uh, when people sin and go in the wrong direction, God does withdraw his hand. God does, he cannot protect us from the consequences of sin when we go in the wrong direction, or at least not completely. I mean, he still protects us <laughs> amazingly as much as he does, but there's times when, when we go in the wrong direction and the Israelites had done what they had done, this great sin, that they were in danger of being wiped out by their enemies. And Moses had a heart for the people, and he knew that through this people was eventually going to come the Messiah. And the Messiah, Jesus, was coming through this people to die on the cross and to try to redeem a whole world, to redeem a lost world. And Satan was working among this people to destroy them. And it was an emergency situation. That's the context. You see that? So in that situation, what does God do? It's true he withdrew his hand and they were in danger. But now what's he going to do? Is that the extent of his justice, the full extent of his justice to just withdraw and let consequences take place? Or is something more needed in this situation? That's the issue. Well, something more was needed. In verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. When you read this, about this in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, I encourage you to read the chapter called Idolatry at Sinai. It's very clear that what happened was that when Moses looked at the people and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. That there were three different groups of people that materialized in front of him. One group was those that had nothing to do with the golden calf, the Levites. They did not bow down. And they came over onto Moses' right side. The second group was those that did worship the golden calf, that had sinned, but they, when they saw Moses' face, the Holy Spirit convicted them, and they repented. And they said, we're, we're sorry, we, we want to come back to God. What a mistake we made, a block of metal. It's not God. And they gathered on Moses' left hand. So the faithful were on the right, and the, um, the unfaithful but the repentant were on the left. Now there was a group in the middle that didn't move. And that group was incorrigible. That was a group that had instigated the building of the calf. They were the biggest threat to the well-being of the whole group. And they refused to repent. We will not budge. And who knows, maybe they said to Moses, hey Moses, you know, what are you doing? Um, why are you being so narrow-minded? You know, we worshiped calves in Egypt, and why not worship one now? You've been gone for a long time, and you know, we like Aaron, and we don't like you. Who knows what they said? <laughs> and so anyway, um, there's these three groups. Now, here's a big question. What is, what is God going to do in this situation? Here's the middle group, and they're a threat. And Satan is behind them, seeking to influence and infect the whole camp 
and leave the whole group to be destroyed. So what does God do? How, how, would a, how does a God of love respond to this situation? He has a number of options, obviously. He could continue just to withdraw his hand and just allow certain natural consequences to take place to that middle group. Or he could do something more. And it's very clear to me, I don't have a question in my mind, not a shadow of a doubt, as I read this chapter and read Patriarchs and Prophets, that a God of love looked at that situation and knew that something more direct had to happen. Because it was an emergency and something had to be done. And so in the next verse, verse 27, Moses said to the Levites, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side. Go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. It's very clear when you read the Bible and when you read Patriarchs and Prophets that the Levites, as they did this act, were definitely, clearly carrying out the mind of God. The character of God, the justice of God, was being implemented right there to a group of people that would not change. It also says in Patriarchs and Prophets that um, for the Levites, this was a painful act for them to do. They did not enjoy it. They did not take any pleasure in it. But it had to be done. If you've got some problem with your body, Let's say your arm has some kind of disease, you know, typical illustration, gangrene. It's, it's infected your arm and it's coming up your arm and it's moving toward your, your, your body, toward your heart. And you go to the doctor, what's a good doctor going to do as he looks at your case? Now, is a good doctor going to say, you know, I'm such a nice guy and I would never put a knife into your arm? Can't do that because I'm such a nice guy. No. A good doctor is going to take that knife and operate and take off your arm if there's nothing else he can do. I mean, if there's another way, he'd do it. But if there's no other way, he's going to cut your arm off to save your life. And no one would accuse that doctor of being cruel, arbitrary, vindictive, mean, or um, you know, whatever other words you can come up with. And if they did accuse him of that, it wouldn't be true. That doctor has the best interest of the person at heart, and he does it because it has to be done. And that is what God did when he commanded the Levites to do it. He did not just allow natural consequences to take place only, but he implemented through the Levites direct justice. And the spirit of prophecy is very clear that God was good in doing it. And that's a key issue. He did it and he was good in doing it. And he had a reason for it. He had a reason. Not only that, it's significant that in verse 29, he took the Levites. Moses said in verse 29, consecrate, he's talking to the Levites, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. God took the Levites who implemented his direct justice in this situation, and he, he honored them and made them the caretakers of his temple because they did such a painful thing, but because it had to be done. In Patriarchs and Prophets, let me read a, a little bit to you from this book. And I encourage you to read this chapter called Idolatry at Sinai. 
It talks about the apostasy at Sinai. It says, unless punishment had been speedily visited upon transgression, the same results, what happened in the days of the flood, would again have been seen. The earth would have become as corrupt as in the days of Noah. Had these transgressors been spared, evils would have followed greater than resulted from the sparing of the life of Cain. It was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgments upon millions. In order to save the many, he must punish the few. And then there's more in this paragraph. I won't read it all. But then the last sentence says, It was in love to the world, in love to Israel, and even to the transgressors that, cr that, that crime was punished with swift and terrible severity. That's amazing. And that is the context of Exodus 34, where God describes his mercy, his truth, and his justice. There was a lot of mercy revealed at the golden calf. Even after they were doing it, Moses came down and gave them all an opportunity to repent. When he said, if you're on the Lord's side, come to me. He gave them all. That was the mercy's golden plea. And yet finally, one group in the middle said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And the devil was behind that group. And that devil that was behind that group is a very, very evil and sinister being. One of the issues that I've seen very, become very clear to me is that uh, to the extent that we understand the evil of sin, to that extent are we going to appreciate the justice of God against it. To the extent that we do not understand the evil of sin, the horror of sin, to that extent are we going to not understand the justice of God against it. And we even might end up, which many people are doing today, uh, without really realizing what they're doing, they're coming to the conclusion that if, that if God does punish sin direct, direct, directly, then he must be evil in doing it. And, uh, and we don't want to worship a God like that. So then they say, well, God can't be that way. So instead of believing that he does it for good reason, they rearrange things and say, well, he does it, but he doesn't do it that way. He does it in a different way. He just withdraws his hand, and that's the full extent of the way he implements his justice. But that's not true. God does withdraw his hand many times, but he also punishes directly when the situation requires it. And when he does it, he's doing it for good reason, motivated by love. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And this is all part of the character of God and the character of God controversy that's going on right now within our church. Hebrews chapter 1. And I think I started a little bit late, so I'm going to go for another 10 minutes for the recording. I hope that's okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, is talking about the Son about Jesus. The Father is talking about the Son. And the Father and the Son are one in character, right? Some people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is mean, the God of the New Testament is nice. Not true. There's lots of mercy in the Old Testament. And there's also plenty of justice in the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is really Jesus Christ. And the God of the Old Testament, Jesus, the Father and the Son, 
in the Old Testament and in the New are always united. There's, we can't split the God of the Old and the God of the New. They're united, and we need to understand their heart. Hebrews 1.8, the Father's talking about the Son. To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have loved. And I think about that. You have loved. The God of the Bible is a God of love. God does love, doesn't he? Everybody pretty much believes that within our church. And I believe that strongly. Some people don't focus on it as much as they do. And the challenge is balance. We can be so focused on mercy that we neglect justice. We can be so focused on justice we neglect mercy. We can go into one ditch after another. And God wants us to find the balance, which is described in Exodus 34, which is revealed in the character of Christ himself, which is what we need to have in our foreheads. Balance. Scriptural balance. Not one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord, but biblical balance. You have loved, talking about the Son. And Jesus does love, doesn't he? Jesus loves so much that he gave his life on the cross. He loves. He loves. Now what, now what does it say in this verse that he loves? He loves righteousness. He not only loves us, but he loves what's right. Because he knows that righteousness is the basis of security in this universe. Now not only that, but it also says he not only loves righteousness, but then what does it say? What else does he do? It says, he, you have hated, hated. And what does he hate? Iniquity. You have hated. Can, does, God does have love, we all know that, but what about hate? Does God hate? What does the Bible say? Yes, he does hate. When you read the Desire of Ages, it says that Jesus loved every sinner. There's only one thing in this world that Jesus hated. Only one thing. And that was sin. He hated sin. And how much did he hate sin? With a hatred that we, we can't even understand. Um, if you're a parent, you probably understand that a little bit more. You know, I'm now a dad. It took me 45 years to become a father. <laughs> Got married at 41. Had my first son at 45. Now my little daughter's on the scene and she's almost one. So I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. My two little munchkins who jump on me in the morning when I get out of bed. And it's just wonderful to have these two little kids. And I love my kids. I love my wife and I love my children. And if someone were to break into our house and grab my little boy's Thomas the Train set and grab it and try to hit him on the head and break his skull or try to attack my wife or grab my daughter and try to hurt her. How would I feel? I love my family. What is going to happen? I'd have to pray, Lord, help me know what to do. <laughs> do I pray or do I act? <laughs> Lord, what do I do? I don't know what I do. But I tell you, I love my children and my wife. And because of my love, I hate anything that would hurt my family. And that is because I love, so I hate. You understand? This verse tells us that's the way Jesus is. Jesus hates sin. 
because it hurts those he loves. And if we miss that, we'll never really understand the true character of God. God does withdraw his hand many times. There's examples of this. You'll find this in the Bible. But there are other times when he acts directly. And he does it for good reason. Because sin is dangerous. He did it at the golden calf. He did it with, uh, with Herod in the, in the New Testament. Remember Herod? The angel Herod imprisoned Peter and he was going to kill him. And Peter was in jail and the angel came into the prison and the whole prison lit up and the angel struck Peter. It says in the Bible, he struck him and he said, get up, let's get out of here. So Peter got up and he went. And then Herod found out that uh, Peter had escaped and he slaughtered the guards. Wasn't the guards' fault. What if the guards was one of my, was my dad? You know, cruel, cruel man. And then he went out to Caesarea and he had this big speech in front of this whole crowd. And they said, this is a god, not a man. And Herod said, yeah, that's right. I mean, he was exalting in his own glory, his cruel glory, and taking credit to himself and thinking that he was, he was a god. And then it says in Acts 13 that the angel of the Lord struck him and he died. And when you read it in Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White's very clear, it was the same angel that struck Peter and that struck Herod. But she says it was a different stroke. That's right. There are times when God does act directly and he does it for good reason and he's good in the doing of it. And one of these days, Jesus is going to destroy the devil. Amen. Read it in Ezekiel 28. God says, I will bring a fire out from the midst of you and I will turn you to ashes upon the, on the earth in the sight of all that behold you and you will never be anymore. Amen. Satan hates God with a passion and he'd destroy you and destroy me if he could. And one of these days, God himself is going to destroy Satan. Amen. Read it in Hebrews 2. Jesus will destroy the works of the devil. And he's going to be good in doing it. And when it finally comes, when he does that, God's people are going to say, Amen, Lord. Amen. We trust you. Thank you for acting to get rid of evil in this universe. Amen. Because you love us so much. I'm going to close with one verse. And we've got more to discuss. This is just part one. Revelation chapter 16. This is all part of the character of God. To say that God is evil if he punishes sin is not true. It's a lie. God is not evil when he punishes sin. He's good and he does it for good reason. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, on the great day of the Lord, when Jesus comes, it says that the wicked, Revelation 6, 16, will say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? This is the only verse in the Bible that describes the wrath of the Lamb. And I hope I can find this quote. I didn't mark it, but it's in the Desire of Ages. I think it's page 600. Here it is. Desire of Ages, page 825. The, the term wrath of the Lamb is only used one time in the whole Bible. And that's it right there in verse 16. 
only time, the wrath of the lamb. Well, that doesn't make sense. How do you have lamb and wrath? How do they go together? You know, isn't that a tongue twister? Oxymoron. The lamb, yeah, oxymoron. A lamb with wrath? Well, here is the spirit of prophecy's explanation of that term. Here it is, and I'm going to close with this. It says, Divine love has been stirred to its unfathomable depths for the sake of men. And angels marvel to behold in the recipients of so great a love a mere surface gratitude. In other words, when the angels see us, you know, learning about the gospel, about Jesus, his suffering in Gethsemane and the cross, and then we just think, oh, that's nice, and then we turn the channel and watch something else, they just, they can't comprehend that shallowness. They marvel at man's shallow appreciation of the love of God. Heaven stands indignant at the neglect shown to the souls of men. Would we know how Christ regards it? How would a father and mother feel? This is just burned into me. Did they know that their child, lost in the cold and in the snow, had been passed by and left to perish by those who might have saved it? You know, how would I feel if my little boy was in the snow, freezing, and a group of people went by and said, oh, I see him, but we've we got to get to the ski lift. It's on the way up. And there's Seth or Abigail in the snow, freezing, slowly. You know, their body is slowly freezing. Your child, my child. How would a parent feel if they saw this? Here's, this is what it says. It says, would they not be terribly grieved, wildly indignant? Would they not denounce those murderers with wrath as hot as their tears and as intense as their love? The sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child. And those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow beings provoke his righteous anger. This is the wrath of the Lamb. Desire of Ages, page H25. The wrath of the Lamb is not just a passive withdrawal. It is a passion against evil for good reason. And may God help us to understand the God of the Bible, his mercy, his truth, his justice, underlined by his love, his intense love for you and for me, that he would do everything and anything to get us out of sin and save our souls because he loves us and he offered everything. And that's what we'll talk about in the next meeting. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to show us your character, to show us the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and to show us your infinite love and mercy, and to help us to understand that when you do finally act to punish sin, it's motivated by the purest of actions, by your deepest love to get rid of the horror of something evil that will not change. Lord, please help us to see you and to love you and to have your name written in our foreheads. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. 
If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.